Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, what a blessing it is to gather in the name of Jesus and sing about his uh, his. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Kevin Pickering, and uh, my family and I have been coming here to the refuge for about a year and a half or so. Uh, we're still getting to know some of your friendly faces and uh, definitely enjoy being here. My clan is over here, my lovely wife Cindy, and we've got two kids, Charlie and Paxton. We're members of the Student Leader Gospel Community Group, and uh, my wife helps teach the uh, middle school girls, and we get the privilege of also teaching the uh, third and fifth grader uh, Sunday school class. So if I can have all of you stand with me, for the reading of the scripture this morning. It's from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as for shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which with, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Just take it with you. Thank you, Kevin. Hey, good morning. My name is Paul McDade. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's, uh, it's a real joy and pleasure for me to get to continue talking with you all about the armor of God. Uh, I'd like to apologize uh, about my shirt before we get started. If it offends you, you're just going to have to take that up with the Lord. Um, yeah. So we're going to continue walking through the armor of God. Uh, Scott kicked it off a few weeks ago uh, and telling us to put on the whole armor of God, as Kevin just read. And why is this? Why do we need to put on the whole armor of God? As it says in verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. And verse 13 goes on to tell us that the armor is to help us withstand the evil day. So it started with the belt of truth, uh, when Scott opened us up with the belt of truth and talked about the breastplate of righteousness. Um, Pastor Blake talked about the shoes for your feet, that is the readiness given by the gospel of peace, and then uh, finish it up with the shield of faith to protect us from the flaming darts of the evil one. I encourage you to go back if you weren't here uh, and listen to those sermons. They did a great job of expositing the scripture, which is what we're doing through Ephesians. We're continuing our walk through Ephesians. We're nearing the end of it, um, but it's, been a, it's one of my favorite books, and it's really been a joy to, to walk through verse by verse. Two critical, critical points that Blake made uh, the other day, uh, last week actually, he said, we don't stand a chance against our enemy without the armor, but, and this is a big but, the war is already won. We have nothing to fear. This armor protects us, but the war is God's and it's already won. So today we're going to continue outfitting our soldiers. So turn with me, if you will, to verse 17. That's where we'll pick up today. It said, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So picture the Roman soldier, right? Here's a picture of one that I found. Um, you can see his belt and the breastplate and the shoe, his shoes, which were like tough sandals with metal spikes on them. His shield, or scutum, as I appreciate Blake telling us about last week. 
and then the helmet. Uh, this guy doesn't actually have a sword, uh, but he has a very important piece of armor that Paul left off that I really think was an oversight. I call it the uh, soul patch of swagger. I don't really know why he left this out. Uh, this is an actual picture of a Roman soldier. You know, they had really good technology back then. Like their, you hear about their sewers and their paved roads and their digital cameras. Um, and so the soul patch of swagger was left out. I'm really sad about that, but uh, no, I'm a little out of control. Y'all are probably going to have to mute me at some point. But today we are going to talk about two really important concepts of Scripture. Um, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So if you think of those two things in Christian concepts, we're talking about salvation and we're talking about Scripture today. So we're going to start with the helmet of salvation. So here's a picture of what a Roman helmet would have looked like. They're either leather or metal, and you can see they, they had uh, plates to protect their cheeks, they would protect their forehead, and there was like a little plate on the back that would protect their neck. And these helmets were almost impenetrable to arrows, to some swords, it really the only thing that could break through was like a hammer or an axe. So you can see how uh, the, the helmet of salvation, uh, is it, the helmet itself is a really good picture for salvation for us. Here's a definition of salvation. Preservation or deliverance from harm, ruin, or loss. So you can see how that helmet would protect a soldier from those very things. And in the same way, salvation in Jesus protects us from deliverance, from harm, ruin uh, or it's preservation or deliverance from harm ruin or loss and you could really argue that salvation is really the theme of the whole scripture in the old testament if you know that god was sa was saving israel salvation of his chosen people israelites and then in the new testament you see the salvation of the world through king jesus and really if you know if you've been here for any time you know we talk about scripture as a whole and the whole scripture tells the story really of salvation through jesus even the old testament is pointing to salvation through jesus it's really all one story so here's the question for us today what do we need salvation or deliverance from we've already talked about the enemy and the flaming darts of the enemy it protects us as paul said in the letter from schemes of the devil you can see that in verse 11. And remember, it says we're not fighting against flesh and blood. We're fighting against cosmic powers, against darkness. And also, salvation ultimately delivers us from the penalty of our sin. All of us, all of us, not some of us, all of us are separated from God because of what happened. Um, if you read in the story of Adam and Eve, what happened in the garden, that separated us from God. Adam and Eve, if you know the story, chose to sin. They chose to believe that there was something better outside of what God had for them. They chose to believe a lie. And therefore, they were kicked out of the garden. And we tend to think of the garden itself as this perfect place, which it was. The garden was perfect. But the reason the garden was a perfect place is because a perfect God was there with them. God was in the garden with them. He fellowshiped with them. It says that he actually walked with them in the garden. And when Adam and Eve chose to sin, it fractured this relationship with God. God kicked them out of the garden, and essentially what he did is he kicked them out of his presence. They could no longer be in his presence because of their evilness and the holy nature of God. He was really protecting them, honestly, if you, if you really look into it. But we lost that fellowship with God because of that sin in the garden. And so there's a danger here in the church south that we, we kind of fall into this, this idea of comfort, right? We don't really have it that bad. Is it, is it really that bad? Like, even people who don't believe may not really have it that bad. See, there's this, this idea of common grace, which are 
gifts and benefits that God gives to everybody, not just Christians. It's called common grace. And you can read about this all in, in Romans 1. But what happens, and the danger here, is that creation, we, we tend to worship the created over the creator. We worship these things, these comforts that God has given us over worshiping the one who gave them to us. And there's a real danger here. Matt Chandler calls this the passive wrath of God. Where if, if you look in Romans 1, it says that those things that they wanted, God let them have. He just handed them over to those desires of their heart. And it's dangerous because it seems okay. Nothing bad is happening. Think, things seem okay, but this could be the wrath of God letting us have what we desire, um, the created versus the creator. And see, what, what, what happens is for those of us who aren't in Christ, people who don't believe, this is as good as it gets. This life is as good as it gets. This is as close to heaven as unbelievers will get. But for us in Christ, this is as bad as it's going to get. We're as close to hell now as we'll ever be if we're in Christ Jesus. Salvation through Jesus restores us back to that relationship we lost with the Father. It preserves our relationship. Just like the helmet preserves our life in battle, salvation preserves our relationship with God the Father through Christ Jesus. So this morning I want to do a little what salvation is and what it's not. So I'm going to start with uh, the, the most common and the most obvious for us who've been in church at any time, salvation is only possible through the work of Jesus, or through the person of Jesus. John 14, 6 says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. He is the only way to the Father. There aren't other ways to the Father, which leads to the, what salvation is not. Salvation is not possible through any other gods or religions. Being spiritual doesn't count. Listen to me, especially you young people. Uh, I know culture really pulls us in this idea of spirituality, uh, but the Bible says something different. It's only found through Christ Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus is the only way to salvation to, and to the Father. All paths don't lead to God. All religions don't lead to God. We're not universalists. That's the term that means eventually we'll all get there. Whether we believe in Allah or we believe in these different gods that religions teaches, but what the Bible says is salvation is only found through Jesus. And here's the thing, that's not a tolerant position. You're not going to be called a tolerant person if you tell people that, especially if they don't believe the same God and Jesus that we believe, you'll be called intolerant. But we have to be faithful to Scripture that says Jesus is the only way to the Father. Some people may believe that Jesus existed and still be apart from the Father. It says you have to believe that Jesus is who he said he is and did what he said he did, just as the Bible says. Which leads me to my next point, that salvation is only possible through the work of Jesus. Our salvation is made possible through Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. Here's what Colossians chapter 1 says, For in him all the faithfulness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So here's what Jesus' blood and what his work on the cross did. It didn't make us savable. It saved us, okay? It was sufficient for salvation. This verse is talking about exactly what, that, what Jesus did when he died for us. It doesn't say he made us reconcilable. 
It says he reconciled us to the Father through his death and through the blood on his cross. You see, God is not bound by time. When Jesus was on the cross, God wasn't just there with him looking and hoping that one day we would believe. God is here now just as he was there with Jesus, just as he was in the beginning at creation. God is not bound by time as we understand it. He wasn't hoping that Jesus' death would eventually save us. Eventually save us. His death, his burial, and his resurrection was sufficient for our salvation. Our faith in that is what saves us. His, our faith in that objective work of Jesus is what saves us. Salvation is not possible through our own merit. I really want you to, to think on that for me because we're a, we're a, a do-better, try-harder people. We tend to think in this idea, and I fall into this too, that as long as we do a little bit more good than we do bad, then we can be saved. Like we're redeemable in our works. The scales hopefully will tip in our favor. That's not what Scripture says. Colossians just said, the verse I just read said that we were doing evil deeds before He reconciled us. If you've been following along with us through Ephesians, chapter 2 says we were dead in our trespasses and sin. Not sick, we were dead. D-E-D, dead. And it says even the faith, even that faith to believe was given to us. Because we were dead, we couldn't choose to have faith. God gave us the faith to believe in him. So we can't even boast about that. We have nothing to boast about except for the cross of Christ. There are no do-overs. Uh, this is, there's no metaphorical ladder to heaven where we can just try to climb to heaven by doing good and trying harder. The ladder to heaven is what Jesus used to come rescue our dead corpses and to pick us up and to bring us into a right relationship with God. We bring nothing to our salvation except the sin from which we need to be pardoned from. And I don't mean to just beat you up. This is me too. There's hope because we don't have anything to bring to the Father except the sin that we need to be pardoned from. The next thing, salvation is sanctifying. And here's what I mean by that. In James chapter 2, it says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things that needed for the body, what good is that? So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by works. It says, Faith without works is dead. And if you know anything about uh, what James is saying, he's not saying our faith and our works is what saves us. He's saying a living faith will produce sanctifying works. You will see a difference. Ephesians 2.10 that we uh, preached on a few months ago, it says, for we are his workmanship, creating in Christ Jesus four good works that he prepared for us beforehand that we should walk in them. You've probably often heard the fruit analogy uh, you've even probably seen in Scripture, it talks about the fruits of the Spirit. A healthy tree can't help but produce healthy fruit. It can't manufacture fruit if it's an unhealthy tree. A healthy tree produces healthy fruit, just as sanctification and salvation produces fruit in us. And look, it, it doesn't mean we don't struggle. It's a jagged line of sanctification, trust me. It's not a straight line to the top. We struggle, and often we take one step forward and two steps back. But a Christian life should look different over time. If you look at yourself before you became a follower of Jesus, it should look different than it looks now. Which leads me to the next point. Salvation is not a golden ticket. And you've probably heard us use that term a lot here. Because 
most of us grew up in the South, and we grew up, a lot of us grew up in the religious South, and there's a real danger of thinking that something we said 30 years ago um, gives us this golden ticket, like a technicality to God, where we show up, uh, we die, and we show up and be like, look, here's my golden ticket. I said this prayer when I was 10 years old, and I get in because of that. There's a danger in, in, in false salvation through that, of thinking there's a... Um, some sort of technicality that God will accept us when there's really been no change in our life. The Spirit hasn't transformed us. And we want you to hear that warning because I think it's a, a real danger here in the South for a lot of us. It doesn't mean you can't be saved at a young age. We're, we're baptizing a lot of young people and we're seeing change, we're seeing fruit in their lives. That's not what I mean here. But you don't get to flash your golden ticket at God as a technicality. And here's my question for you. As a follower of Jesus, does your life line up with Scripture as it says it should? Or does it look just like anyone else's life who doesn't believe? Here's what Scripture says about that in Matthew chapter 7. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This might be one of the most terrifying passages in Scripture because these are people who know who God is. They think they believe in Jesus, but they show up at the end of their life and God's like, I don't know who you are. You did works of lawlessness your whole life. Just because you say my name doesn't mean you're a follower of mine when you didn't do the will of the Father. Does your life look like someone doing the will of, of the Father or are you a worker of lawlessness? Salvation is evidenced by our work, not a result of our works. Which leads me to the fourth point. Salvation is eternally secure. Here's what Paul says in his letter to the Romans. It says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. What can separate us from the Father? <laughs> What can separate us from the Father? Nothing. Nothing. Our salvation is eternally secure in Christ Jesus. Which means our salvation is not losable through anything we or our enemy can do. If you are in Christ Jesus, listen, you don't have to fear losing your salvation. You can't out the grace of God if you are in Christ Jesus. Because we didn't do anything to earn our salvation, we can't do anything to lose it. It's God who holds us through Christ Jesus. Jesus gives us our salvation and he eternally holds us. There is a battle for our souls. There's a battle for your soul. But like Blake said last week, the war is won and it's not even close. The helmet of salvation, listen, the helmet of salvation that we wear is a gift given to you and you should be confident that no matter what happens, we are victorious. We are being saved. We are saved through Christ. Now, let me see a show of hands. Who plays football or played football at some point in your life? Yeah, quite a few of you guys played football. So imagine playing football and you're running out on the field and you go out there without your helmet. Coach is like, look, we just ran out. There's a shortage, COVID, whatever. <laughs> and you run out there on the field without a helmet. You're not going to be very confident, are you? You're not going to be running at people face first to tackle them. Or if you get the ball, you're going to be kind of running towards the sidelines and, you know get out away as quick as possible. But when you put on that helmet, you have a confidence that you're protected, that you go out there and you can 
knock somebody's helmet off. Yeah, you know what I mean? Even if you're like looking out of the ear hole, you still got that confidence because you're wearing that helmet, right? We can be confident like that, that there's nothing the enemy can do to defeat us if we have the helmet of salvation. Back in our chapter, our, our verse in Ephesians, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So we're moving on to the, the next part of the armor, which is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. So here's what a Roman sword would have looked like. A little short, almost like dagger-type, two-edged sword that was used. It was a very thick, strong sword used for more like hand-to-hand -hand combat, not necessarily like riding a horse with a big long sword like what you might think of out of like Sir Lancelot-type things. But this was a short sword that they would wear on their waist that they could draw quickly, and it would be used in hand-to-hand -hand combat. So think about what we've talked about up to this point with the armor. We've talked about the belt, the breastplate, the shoes, the shield, the helmet, and now the sword. You notice the difference in any of these items? All of the armor up to this point has been defensive, been protective. The sword is the only offensive weapon mentioned in the uh, armor of God. It can be defensive as well, but it's primarily an offensive weapon. Not meant to protect, but meant to, to fight and to do damage against the enemy. How is the word of God an offensive weapon against the enemy? We know that Scripture is the very Word of God. Here's what it says in 2 Timothy. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. Do you see what it said in there? It said it is breathed out by God. It is the very Word of God. It is a powerful weapon. Hebrews says this in chapter 4, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's not just sharp as a sword. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so we even see this in Scripture. We see evidence of the sword, or the Scripture being used as a weapon uh, by Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter 4, if you recall, Jesus is led out into the wilderness for 40 days, and he's tempted. God, the spirit, it says the Spirit led him into the wilderness where he was tempted for 40 days by Satan. And three times Satan tempts Jesus. And you know what Jesus did each of those three times? Yeah, he used Scripture. His response to the enemy was Scripture. Deuteronomy, they were, they were passages out of Deuteronomy that three times he fought the enemy with. You can almost picture it like a sword fight. Jesus and, and Satan fighting with Scripture. Satan would tempt him and Jesus would come back with Scripture each time. And finally the third time he deals a blow and Satan's gone. He runs Satan off because of the use of scripture and fighting with scripture if the son of god the perfect son of god uses scripture as a weapon how much more do we need that as fallen sinful people we've been given this amazing weapon against the enemy it's not only a weapon against our enemy but it's also a weapon against sin the psalm uh, the psalmist in Psalms 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I've stored your word. That's what we're talking about scripture. I've stored the word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's a double-edged weapon. So why don't we use it? I mean, really, why, why don't we use scripture more than we do? You, is it because maybe we've been taught that it's not effective? Maybe the enemy 
has convinced us it's not effective. Maybe we think it's outdated because it was written 2,000 and plus years ago, thousands of years ago. Here's some statistics I wanted to show you. Let me add, before I toss this first one up, in all of America, what percentage of people, of households, do you think own a Bible? Is that 80? I want to hear, you got it, 60? Somebody say 90? That's pretty close. Nine out of ten households on average own a Bible in America. You know that the, the rate of people who believe in Jesus aren't that high, but nine out of ten households in America own a Bible. Of those households, four Bibles on average. So nine out of ten households own, on average, four Bibles. Fifty-three percent of those people said they've read very little of their Bible. Thirty-five percent said they never pick up their Bible. That's pretty amazing on both sides, right? It's amaz- it was shocking to me. This was a Barna study from 2019. It's shocking to me to see that that many people own a Bible. Um, and I guess I was probably expecting it more to be like 35%, because 35% saying they never pick it up doesn't really shock me that much. From If you see what culture is like around us, that's not that shocking of a statistic. But the fact that 9 out of 10 households, almost 9 out of 10 households own a Bible. And I would say that some of us in this room potentially fall into these categories. Of the 100 and some odd people here, some of us probably fall into these categories. We have a lethal weapon against our enemy in our homes. I would say probably everybody here owns a Bible. You probably, if you don't own a Bible, you probably have the Bible app on your phone. We have the lethal weapon against our enemy, literally in the palm of our hands. Did you know that in 52 countries around the world, it's either illegal or extremely hard to get a Bible? And we're on the other end of that. Nine out of ten households have a Bible. And I think it, the, the problem is we almost take that for granted because it's so common. Grew up with Bibles. They're in the, the drawers at the hotels we stay in. There's a Bible everywhere. If we want one, we can download one on our, our phones. We all have phones. But we've been convinced by the enemy that it's not effective or powerful. Or we've been convinced that we need something else, something more. Yeah, the Bible's good, but we need something more. Look, devotionals are great tools. I, I read one every single day. Devotionals are great. Podcasts are great. Books are great. But listen, they're not a substitute for your Bible. Okay? If you're reading more devotionals and more podcasting or your Bible, something's out of balance. And I'm saying this to myself as well. I've got a stack of books that high that I've been given or bought that I want to read. But I've got to make sure that I keep in balance how often I'm seeking Scripture versus what I'm thinking man says or what man says about Scripture. It's not a substitute. So what? These are all a lot of good accusatory facts you gave me, Pastor, but what do we do with this? I like what R. Kent Hughes says in his commentary on Ephesians about Scripture. He gives us some some pointers, and these aren't earth-shattering things. These are all common-sense type things. The first one, read your Bible. Woo! Look, I don't get paid, so you get the free version of all of this. (laughs) No, read your Bible. It's an endless well of knowledge about who God is, and about how salvation is found through Christ Jesus. It's that simple. Open it. Read it. If you need some help with that, come talk to us. We're happy to, to help you and uh, read your scripture, how to learn how to read your Bible. I recommend jumping in. on. Uh, we're reading through the New Testament as a church. 
Um, if you want to figure out how to jump in on that, come see me or Blake or uh, Pastor Blake or Pastor Paul. And we can get you signed up on the Bible reading plan through the, the New Testament. Start in the, I always recommend the, the Gospel of John as a good starting place if you don't know where to go. But just open your Bibles and read it. It's an endless will of knowledge. Number two, meditate on it. Prayerfully dwell on its words. Pray over it. Ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate its words and to reveal the truths of Scripture to you. Memorize it. And this is for me as well. Memorize it. With literally every word at our fingertips through our phones or through the four Bibles we have at home, memorizing it may seem irrelevant. I can just open it. I can just pull my phone out and I can just get to what I need. But there's a, there's a benefit in uh, memorizing. Remember what the psalmist said that we just read. He says, I have stored up your word in my heart. He didn't say I have written down your word in my living room. He said I have stored it in my heart that I might not sin against you. Remember, it's a weapon against our enemy. The soldier had his sword on him at any, at any point ready to fight. He didn't have it sitting in his bedside table like, look, I know we're about to fight. I'll be right back. I'm going to go get my weapon. No, he had it on him the whole time. Keep its words close to your heart. Start with one verse. Just start with one verse and see where it goes. I recommend Ephesians 2. I've already quote, uh, referenced Ephesians 2 like three or four times. That's a, great, that's a great chapter to memorize. Start with a verse. Maybe you'll want to memorize a whole chapter. Maybe you want to memorize a whole book. Before we had all this technology and printed Bibles, remember, that's what people did. They memorized Scripture, books and books and testaments of Scripture. The fourth thing, study it. Dissect its pages. Open it up. Spend time in the Word. Study. There are tons of great resources out there uh, to help you with this. Again, like I just said, don't value the resources over Scripture itself, but there are a lot of good resources out there to teach you how to study and how to read your Bible. I encourage you to, to study as we're going along through different preaching series. We're in Ephesians right now. Study Ephesians with us. There might be something that God reveals to you that we haven't been uh, made aware of yet. We can talk about that. You can bring things to us. I'd love to talk over Scripture with you that you've been studying. The things that you find important, the things that you care about, you'll devote your time to. And I just pray that you'll seek the Spirit and that he'll, he'll change your heart. If you don't read Scripture, if you don't study, that he'll begin to, to teach you and to show you how there's benefits and how there's joy found in studying the Scriptures. The Roman soldiers knew how to use their sword. They knew how to fight with their sword. They knew how important it was. Without it, they're helpless. And the same should be said for us as Christians. We're helpless without the Word of Lord uh, being revealed to us through the Holy Spirit. The words of God are a weapon. They are a weapon that God has given to us. Look, this fight is serious. It's a serious fight. That's why Paul put it in Scripture. That's why God put it in Scripture to reveal to us. But it's not even really a fair fight, is it? It's really amazing if you think about this, like what, what Blake was saying last week. God saves us through nothing that we can do of our own. He gives us the tools to protect us and to help us fight, not just for Christian living, but to fight the battles that we face in life. And through the Spirit, He trains us how to use them. The fight's really not fair. All we have to do is just take the weapons that He's given us. He's given us all that we need to fight this war. The war that He's already won, by the way. Even if we take blows from the enemy, we're wearing the helmet of salvation if we were in Christ Jesus. We have nothing to fear. Like we're just saying, we are His, and He is ours. And this is why Paul, when he was thrown in jail, and when he was beaten and shipwrecked, 
he could say, look, to live as Christ is Christ and die is gain. There's nothing you can do to me. The battle's already won. If I die, hey, it's gain. To live, hey, live as Christ. There's nothing. He, he didn't have a fear of death. He had the helmet of salvation to protect him. So I close with this thought. How did soldiers train and fight? Think about it. Did they train individually? Or did they train and fight as an army? It was an army, right? One soldier by himself is, is essentially useless, but an army of trained soldiers, how incredible. The church, listen, the church is that army. We are in an army. We have each other. We have the church, the bride of Christ, to fight this fight together. Don't fight it alone. You'll be picked off by the enemy. That's why God gave us the church, is to fight these fights together. Don't fight in isolation. Maybe you don't really know what I'm talking about. Maybe you haven't been given this helmet of salvation yet. And what I'm saying is maybe you just haven't put your faith and trust in Christ Jesus and what he's done for you and what he offers you. His work of salvation has been accomplished for you. All you have to do is just repent and believe. It sounds too easy because it is. And so I encourage you today, if you're here and this doesn't really make sense to you, if you look at your life and, and you say, you know, I've been told about Jesus all my life, but there's not really anything different about me. Today could be your day of salvation. Repent. That just means, you know what, I've been chasing after the wrong gods my whole life. I'm choosing to turn and to worship the one true God through Christ Jesus. And then believe. Believe that what Jesus did, he really did for you. That who he says he is, is really who he is. He's the son of God that lived and died and bled and was resurrected on our behalf for us. If you're outside the household of faith, you're losing this fight. You're going to lose this fight. But today could be your day of victory through Christ Jesus. Church, through Christ, we have the undefeatable helmet of salvation. We have the very words of God to fight life's battles. The war is won, and it's not even close. Let me pray for us.